Cells. Cells. Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked. What's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger? Interlinked. You're listening to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host, Patrick Green. That's my that's my AI voice, Jamie. That's my uh, artificial intelligence. Quato, what's the Quato Nectar? You know that from from um, the day the Earth stood still. No, I, I assumed you were having a stroke, actually, just now. Oh, God. I've never seen that, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Oh, it's great. The remake isn't Classic. too bad with Keanu Reeves either, but yeah, The Day the Earth Stood Still is a great film. But yeah. before we get into any of that, we are here to break in a new series on artificial intelligence, our relationship to artificial intelligence, vis-a-vis Blade Runner, but... Almost everything, as much as we can fit in three to four episodes. There's a lot of ground to cover. It's something Patrick and I have been discussing for at least two years. Like, we got to do the series. We got to do the series. We got to do the series. Oh, yeah, but we were doing this. So um, now was the time that I felt like, that we felt like, before the 40th anniversary celebration begins, we're really going to jump head first into a discussion on what artificial intelligence is and how we relate to it. But start off with replicants this is you know this is a blade runner podcast and for all intents and purposes replicants are artificial intelligence um we really not sure what they are but i'm excited to have this conversation yeah they're either (laughs) it's funny because we we also did a whole series on replicants and came out of it even less sure of what they actually were than we went into it which of course is par for the course of blade runner right um but anytime you look up a list online like i did in preparation for this episode of like top ranked AI movies, Blade Runner is always on that list, right? So whether or not replicants are really artificially intelligent or however you want to classify them, in terms of how society views replicants in you know, our society in the real world, but also the society of Blade Runner, they are considered artificially intelligent, right? They are beings that we have imbued in some way with the ability to govern themselves and to have some sort of you know, programmed agency, whether it's real or whether it's not. Um, and so, yeah, artificial intelligence, I think, is all over Blade Runner. It's also in some subtle ways, I think, in Blade Runner, too, because we see the ways in which machines interact with people feels very artificially intelligent, the way that things are voice automated, the way that machines can detect empathy. You know, th- there's a lot of a lot of things about the ways that machines interact with people that require artificial intelligence. But of course, yeah, the replicants are the, are the primary, you know, source of that. Um, But I guess even before we get to that, you know, in this series, we're going to be kind of zooming in and out quite a bit. We're going to be talking about uh, other films, like, for example, the Alien films, of course. We might even do a crossover, who knows, at some point with that. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, But we'll be talking about other films and artificial intelligence. Then we'll we'll also be talking about artificial intelligence in our own lives, because we live in an era, in a time where AI went from something fantastical to something, you know, almost banal to something that we've become so used to. Um, and we'll be talking about you know AI as a symbol of of dystopia and a symbol of utopia as AI 
as something threatening or AI as something promising. So there's a lot, you know, of ground to cover. And I was just thinking about that, you know, as we were coming into this episode tonight, a lot of the movies that I want to talk about, movies like The Terminator, movies like Blade Runner, came out in like the early ex machina but that doesn't fit what i'm about to say okay although that's that's a great one um and one that i definitely think we need to talk about most, most of the movies that that when i kind of think classic ai tron right they came out in the early to mid 80s and i think there's a reason for that right i think they came out at a time where technology we kind of had become optimistic again in some ways right it was like a free market free for all you know all bets are off like america's got all this shit coming into it let's do what we want you know, and art reflected that. Art was very optimistic and forward-looking, and the and you know technology that we were on the cusp of when Blade Runner was being made was sky's the limit, right? At the heart of Blade Runner, there are two interesting things happening. One of them is this really threatening, you know, allegory of what can happen if things go wrong, because obviously the LA of 2019 is not an LA that anybody would want to live in unless they, you know, I mean, it would be an interesting place to live, but it's clearly not safe. It's clearly not clean. It's clearly chaotic. Um, it's a place that people are literally escaping the planet to get away from, you know, the, so it's, there's the cautionary fable at the heart of that in terms of technology and where it's taking us, but it's also deeply optimistic about our ability to create things in our own image, right? It's deeply optimistic about what we can do with artificial intelligence. You had to think like the time when Blade, Runner, when Blade Runner came out, AI in movies was always almost like sorcery, right? It was it was just fantastical. It was bright lights and crazy voices. And Blade Runner, the AI is indistinguishable from us. And that's actually the heart of that story. Um, and so that's part of why it's very special. But I think what's interesting is you go from these movies uh, where AI is something that didn't really exist in the real world at all, like the way it exists now, although there was things like machine language and things that kind of approximated AI back then, to movies being made now, like Ex Machina, like you were just mentioning, and the, the way that we look at artificial intelligence is so much more uh, skeptical and and usually fearful. So it's an interesting way to look at it. But again, going back to Blade Runner, to me, that's really where it starts. The way that we think about artificial intelligence as a modern construct in film starts with Blade Runner. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. And I think with Blade Runner, we are asked a series of questions about the AI. What is it? What do we owe to it, if anything? How do we treat it? And the big question, which we've discussed in other iterations of our show, how does that make us look as people? How does that define us as people on how we treat AI. Um, there is the whole conversation on what are replicants. And we got into how are they made? What are they? How, we don't we don't really know. We had some hints, um, some speculation, but we're not really sure exactly how they're made. But that's not what we're covering in this so much as for all intents and purposes, replicants are AI. And to your point, they reflect us more than anything else we'd seen at that point. Uh, to rewind a little bit, you had AI in cartoons like the Jetsons, which I mentioned in an episode we did for what other show. Yeah, you, you fucking love the Jetsons. I did. I loved it. I, I, mean, I know, did too. Rosie the robot who took care of the family. Very, It's very utopian, stupid AI. Like, we're just here to serve. What can I get for you? What's for dinner? Comic relief. And then, of course, that's for children. Um, so it made sense. But then you had 
Conversely, I don't know if you ever saw Silverhawks. Silverhawks was out around the same time as Thundercats. And Silverhawks, there were these humans, but they were like augmented with metal and they could fly and they had wings and they flew in space. I loved it. It was great. What um, I feel like you're making this shit up again. I no, feel like it's another early 80s thing that that I wasn't no. alive for that you're just telling me about. You were alive for it. You're just young. When did this when did this come out? Silverhawks. In the 80s. Yeah. In the mid 80s. Yeah. What time were years? I was born in 85. You're 85. Yeah, 80, okay. 85. Yeah. Maybe. I was. Um, well, I don't remember shit from that time. I'll tell you that. That's true. But that's it's, true. it sounds cool, though. Silver Silverhawks was great. At yeah. any rate, um, so you have this this slow, like, I mean, you have AI for children, which tends to be maybe a little bit complex, but also they're just good. They're good guys. Um, but then you have Transformers or GoBots, which then AI starts taking on a more uh, malevolent turn where the, the the Decepticons are AI and they're 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 out for destruction of not only the Autobots but Earth. Um, so things get a little bit more serious and then you have certain movies like I think really the first time in a movie that AI is really, really frightening is 2001 A Space Odyssey directed by Stanley Kubrick and of course HAL 9000 being the the antagonist in the film and how terrifying it is it was and is today watching that movie i mean hal 9000 is absolutely terrifying so you have these really different these really wide pendulum swings from oh this is our friend our robot friend to this robot wants to kill you then to like say a disney movie like the black hole did you ever see that no oh fuck off <laughs> I'm not seeing any of this shit. Um, so the is black hole, animated, which I believe, or this is no, live action. It was, it was live action. I think it might okay. be on Disney Plus. Their premise is there's this crazy scientist on this ship, and he's doing crazy things. And this, uh, these other people on another ship, or go to this big huge ship to talk okay. to the scientist about what he's doing. And the scientist has made these like big huge exterminating robots. But then there's like these friendly robots that the other guys bring and they look like a version of R2-D2 that floats. It's got these big eyes. I'll show you some photos later on. Yeah, I'm, I'm fucking in. This movie sounds like my shit. I'm, it's I'm hilarious. It's, it's a great movie. It's really serious and scary, too. It's like back when Disney did really scary things with some of their films. Terrifying? Terrifying, yes. Terrifying really? imagery. Um, wow. some, of it's, some of it's stupid and comical. Other parts of it are really terrifying. I'm going to um, watch that shit. But again, it's this relationship with ai where it's very evil or it's very good and there's very few in between things there and i think when we get to blade runner and replicants that ai is this in between where we are set up to believe that the ai in blade runner is evil or not evil but just the bad guy when in fact they are not but i think the conversation of artificial intelligence is a complicated one and our relationship with it and how like what did you think, though? Like, what were your thoughts about robots and that kind of thing as, as a kid? Uh, as a kid, my thoughts of robots were that they made the best toys, for one thing. That, you know, like, to me, robots were Transformers, you know, in that era. Uh, they were also things that I really associate with Star Wars, obviously, because the way, that, I mean, Star Wars really popularized, I think, this concept of droids, mm -hmm. right? Of, like, robots as... I mean, again, they're artificially intelligent for one thing. I mean, we see power droids, we see translators, we see all these different classes of, you know, uh, of, of robots in Star Wars. And so as a kid, of course, loving those movies, 
you know, I was really that to me, that's what art, that's what AI looked like. And then I got a little bit older and I saw more cautionary views of it, like the Terminator. And I started thinking about like, oh, what if these robots can like talk to each other without us there to mediate, like what could happen? And, you know, Skynet really scared the shit out of me for that reason. But um, what's interesting though, is the more like, so, so how 9,000, right? 2001 is one of our mutual favorite films. It's just an incredible masterpiece uh, that goes without saying. Hal 9000 is so fascinating because he is, in many ways, the least humanoid AI we have in a movie. Like, other than her, I mean, even her, that feels more closer to human because, oh, like, sure. the way that she interacts is very human. So, even though you don't see her, you know, um, I mean, and Hal 9000 is just a light pulsing on the on the control panel right like that's really all we get to see of him and yet uh he's probably the most outside of replicants and maybe the terminator the most like singularly indelible ai character to emerge from the 20th century i'm sorry dave i'm afraid i can't do that before that though of course like so metropolis is a movie that means a lot to me you know we did a frame on that years ago uh, I bring it up in most episodes as just an example of an, of an you know, it set the standard in, in so many ways for science fiction. That that often is considered the first cinematic treatment of artificial intelligence because it's at the heart of it, outside of the class warfare and all these other things, there's this story of this this robot-made woman, right? We get this Pygmalion thing almost where this this robot is transformed into a replicant essentially and then goes crazy and a lot of chaos ensues because of that so in metropolis is a movie that i discovered as a teenager around the time i discovered blade runner and by then my concept of ai was one of fundamentally fear right at least as it was appearing in movies and going back to hell 9000 like what's so amazing about that that computer is that the only reason it does what it does is because it made a mistake and it is incapable of admitting it by its programming it can't it's, its programming doesn't allow it to admit that it made a mistake so like there actually isn't a malevolence at the heart of of the computer or anything but as people what's so fascinating is we inject so much of ourselves because we kind of have to and we start seeing it as this real antagonistic we sort of almost like when i say how 9000 i can almost envision what he looks like it's like it's this being when in reality it was just a computer that had a certain type of programming that was heuristic problem solving and it couldn't admit this one thing in the code and it was unfathomably scary because of that uh and you know, a lot of that has to do with the performance of Kier uh, D'Elia, and a lot of it has to do with just the way the movie is constructed. Uh, but it's it's at its heart to me like that that as an artificial intelligence really set the template for what I expected. I have to say though, on the flip side to that, then I'll hand it over to you to kind of make sense of what I'm saying. AI in my personal life has been one of until recently increasing optimism because we've gotten that Jetsons experience. Like you and I are alive at a time where when, I mean, when I was a kid, the first computer that we had was this like monstrosity that was probably $10,000, like literally $10,000. And I was maybe 10 years old and we had dial up internet that was like 26 or 14 K or whatever it was. And it was so primitive, but it felt like magic, right? It, it felt like unfathomable to me. And, you know, since then, you know, I mean, Facebook came into being when I was in college, you know, I, and when I was 19 years old and, and I've had an account since then, 
and I've grown with this technology as a person, you know, like I've gone from having no phone to having this like very, you know, shitty brick cell phone in high school to having a phone that I just interact with, with my voice much of the time to having a phone now that I don't actually even bring with me most places I go because my watch can fill in for it. So I don't even have to have anything in my pocket because my watch is connected to the same global internet that my phone is connected to. And I can just lift my, literally, I don't have to say it anymore. I can just lift my wrist up and ask it a question and receive almost instantly an answer to anything that I could think of. The, the, I mean, it's, it's incredible to think about the distance that that is in our lives. So we have gone from having artificial intelligence as something that we only know through movies like Blade Runner and The Terminator to something where technology far, in many ways, far more fantastical even than those movies could show us is actually something that we're interacting with every day. Uh, and it's just, it's, you know, what, what I think is so interesting is we always see movies as these like harbingers of the future as he's like, you know, they're, they're seeing what things will look like. And in Blade Runner, you know, we are given this template that the future will be one in which we have artificially intelligent, indistinguishable humanoid synthetic people, or not even synthetic people, but, you know, people, engineered people, or I, I'm having to check my words in every single thing I'm saying because we don't know any of these things about them. But the, we will have basically facsimiles of ourselves that we will own and that will have artificially intelligent principles to operate on. And today, instead of that, I mean, we don't have anything like that. Anybody who's watched, like the most advanced robotics we have are things from, you know, for example, Boston Dynamics and the robots that they put out look ridiculous. I mean, they're incredibly capable, but like nobody's going to be like, wow, is that a person, right? Um, instead, we have the internet and that, that has transformed. That's something that Ridley Scott could only have dreamed of in 1982. That is... Uh, that to me is where artificial intelligence has really gone and in many ways become gradually more and more frightening to me as I've grown older. But yeah, there's a lot in there to pick apart if you want to. What I'm gravitating to and what you're saying is the iterations that we've seen throughout our lives, throughout our childhood, were very obvious representations of AI. Robots, evil, good, funny, bad, comic relief, uh, sex slaves, all sorts of different things, all sorts of different iterations and shades of AI. But what's happened, how it's actually iterating in our lives, it's like quietly creeping into our lives. And it's been doing that for years. And it's here in a way that I think if we lived with actual automatons that could walk among us, that might be an easier life than the life we're living now in terms of our relationship with AI, because it's in everything that we're doing. It's algorithmically, it's seeing what we're doing, it's tracking what we're doing, it's selling our info, it's pushing, it's pushing things to our view that we might see that might be good for us. Some of it might be bad for us. It doesn't discriminate. And because AI doesn't discriminate, it makes a very volatile world. And we're seeing that. We're seeing a world that's radicalized by AI essentially. And that was all over, whether it's the January 6th um, thing that happened in 2021. Um, that was really, really frightening. A lot of those people were, were um, radicalized by AI. They were in groups and then the AI was pushing or essentially suggesting other groups or other whatever um, that they would be interested in and just pushing and furthering that narrative. So if you're into conspiracy theories, it's going to algorithmically suggest things within that sphere 
to promote to you to see if you're interested in it. And I think you're right. I think AI is so much more scarier now. And what's scary about AI is that there are people behind it. And they're like, well, we're just going to let the computers do what they need to do. And I would much rather a world where we're walking around with maybe more identifiable robots. At least we know what they're doing. At least we can, like, deactivate them. Um, yeah, maybe someone's tracking us with them, but at least we can, like, not invite them into our home. But with, you know, our our phones and our computers, we have no choice. Everything is being tracked. Everything is being recorded. Even our text conversations are being recorded by our carriers. Um, and that's just the way it goes. Nothing is private. And that's what AI wants. But more importantly, it's what the humans behind it want. Um, everything is a commodity. Everything is a monetization. I would, I think I much prefer the, the, the world of film where we can talk about AI in a way that isn't so, that doesn't have its fingers in us as we breathe, as we look at whatever. I mean, there's things that we'll, we'll say audibly and then we'll get on social media and there it is in front of us because it's listening to us. It happens Literally. so much now. Oh my Doesn't God. So all much. the time. It's all fucking the time. weird. Yeah. 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 Well, so I, I think that you're absolutely onto something, but I also think what's interesting though, in what we're both getting at is that in some ways, Blade Runner might've been more prescient than we give it credit for because so even going back to Philip K. Dick and of course the novel came out significantly before the movie did. Mm-hmm. The novel is all about kind of what we're talking about, you know, finding facsimiles of the real thing and making it indistinguishable because, you know, it's a world of loss, right? It's a world where environmental destruction has caused mass extinction, where, you know, people are losing loved ones, where everybody's living isolated lives. And so to fill the gap in that, they create animals that are pets, right? So that people can have an ostrich or a lamb on their rooftop. They can have something real in their lives, even if it's not actually real once you take it apart. But like nobody takes it apart because to take it apart in public would be to out yourself that you have this fake thing in your life, quote unquote. And of the technology that goes into that, of course, leads to replicants, which are just the, the human version of that. So there is something similar about the motivations driving the... So this is actually something that we can kind of get into for a minute. The philosophical things driving that are interesting and probably say a lot about ourselves now, because in Blade Runner, and especially in Dewander's Dream of Electric Sheep, they are trying, they're talking about artificial intelligence as a way to silently replace things that we've lost. Mm -hmm. And in the contemporary world, I think, and I think the January 6th insurrection is a great example of this. I think we are living in a time where we are seeking to replace things that we've lost with things that we can no longer detect as being unreal. And I think, you know, we talk about algorithms as a tool for capitalism all the time, and they obviously are. But beyond that, though, I think they're also, in some ways, filling this gap with social isolation that people experience. You know, the people that were there on January 6th were people who've been spending so much time just staring at their phones and at their computer screens with like-minded people surrounded by, and many of those people were bots, of course, we know now. So Russian and otherwise. So do we have people surrounding themselves with fake people or with people who aren't even real and being convinced that they are and getting stuck in this loop where they're, you know, they're getting feedback from these artificially intelligent bots that are in drones that are driving all these conversations and thinking that, you know, the world really is as crazy as it is. You know, I'm, I'm listening to a really good podcast 
little podcast recommendation for people called Will Be Wild, W-I-L-L, Be Wild. And it's uh, put out by Pineapple Street and Wondery, I think. And it's uh, it's a long form uh, investigation into the insurrection and into what led up to it. And you hear these like intelligence officials talking about how scared they were because there were all of these issues already with the ways that these algorithms were driving conversations four or five years ago. Like this was already a problem. And everybody in the intelligence community, especially domestically, was saying, like, it's just going to happen. Like at some point, something's going to tip over and this online thing will become real. And they just didn't know when that was. And then as soon as COVID hit, there were all of these red flag warnings being put out to an administration that, I'm sorry if people want to turn the fucking podcast off because it's political now, but whatever. The administration was ignoring that was saying that this is creating that catalytic event that we have been worried about because people are going to be locked in their homes now and unable to communicate and further isolated from each other. And this is what will tip this into real violence. And of course it did. So what's the reason I'm getting into this now, and I'll stop being political, even though it's not really political, is to say that I think the function of the creatures and the replicants in the world of Philip K. Dick and the world of Hampton Fancher and Ridley Scott is more similar to ours than we might realize because we're both trying to fill a hole, right? And it might be a harder hole to see, but there's something lacking about the ways in which we communicate now as humans with each other. There's this wall between people. And I don't even mean just politically or whatever. I I mean, just literally, like we just don't communicate the way we used to. And I think we are creating for ourselves ways of communicating that are actually causing our own destruction. And they're doing it while making money off it at the same time, which is like pretty strange. I was thinking some of the same things that you're, I mean, in terms of what AI is doing to us, how it's affecting our communication as people um, today in the real world that we live in. Um, But at the same time, we have AI, uh, we have things called iRobot or Roomba, which will clean our homes and take care of things for us or sweep and doing a lot of the things that made the Jetsons fun. That's a very Jetsons piece of technology, isn't it? Yes, it is. I love our Roomba. It's so cute. We we use it all the time. And now uh, you can see uh, deliveries going down the street, uh, depending on where you live, that are with an AI robot driving itself down the street, going to a delivery, drones dropping packages in people's backyards or in people's front yards. Like These are things that are happening. Conversely, what's also happening is a different, I would say malevolent form of AI is not only changing how we interact as people, it's changing how we interpret everything. And I can say this as someone who has been caught up in that, has been caught up, especially during the pandemic, when we have AI that's affecting the way we talk to each other. It's affecting how we perceive each other. And what I was trying to get in, what I was trying to kind of talk about is AI interfering so much with our communication that anything we see, any opinion that's different than ours, we have this negative reaction to or possible negative reaction to. And I'm talking about this because I have been guilty of it. If the people behind things like Facebook or which, you know, people or Meta, they're also the owners of Instagram, Twitter, all of the, the, the major social media corporations what they're really doing. And I don't think that they're attempting to pit people against each other or, or recreate the way we perceive each other or the way we communicate, but that's actually what's happening. And when they've been 
confronted with this reality, they're pushing back on it like, no, 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 no. That's not like, well, the algorithms, like there's most most famously, recently there was an interview or Mark Zuckerberg was at Congress and he was being grilled by um, AOC. And she was asking him this question. She was asking him all of these questions, but he kept pivoting back to, well, you know, really the algorithms can do this. Like, like that could save us as opposed to actually humans making decisions like maybe this isn't good. Maybe because algorithms, they don't have empathy, which I think is what we're really getting back to with these discussions with this first episode is the question of empathy. And does AI represent empathy? And AI is terrifying without empathy. And what we're experiencing as a world culture today is is communication infused by AI without empathy. And it's tearing us asunder. And in the world of Blade Runner, where you have replicants, what what it's the flip is happening where you see people or whatever they might be that are indistinguishable from us endowed with or learning empathy and that being a threat so it's strange like oh they you know they, they can't be here if you know they can't learn too much they can't they can't be on earth um and if they know too much they're a threat um and the same was happening with k in 2049 where you know we saw him being baselined we saw the second baseline where things were going things were going awry and there was an anomaly but i think what was happening was he was engaging empathy and i think too much empathy doesn't make for a good corporation corporations to be the best of the best they have to lose that they have to like you know, take a gulp and say, okay, this might not be great for John and Jane Doe or they or them over there, but we're doing what's best for us. And if we're going to be successful as a company, then we have to remove some of our empathy to succeed. And I really think that's what's behind it. Yeah. And of course the language isn't really, but they get away from it by saying not what's best for us. They say what's best for the shareholders, right? Mm -hmm. So they're able Mm -hmm. to like separate themselves from it and kind of put the onus on people who own small shares in this company that, you know, don't have any idea of the actual evils happening at the heart of it most of the time. And they just want to make a little bit of money to pay their rent off. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's so interesting in what you're saying is that I, I honestly never really thought much about why empathy is such an important delineator in the films other than I always thought of it like they don't want them to be too human. They want to have like a wall up to control them with. But what's interesting is that the wall that's up to, con- to control them with isn't even like agency or whether they w- get to do what they want to do. It's whether they have empathy. So so it's it's interesting that that like with Tyrell's replicants, for example, you have these these beings who are so human in so many ways who are deemed faulty if they become empathetic and must be killed. And then in 2049, you have Wallace's replicants who once again, are really tightly reined in with this empathy guideline. You have him trying to find ways to make them be able to procreate with one another, but still not create empathetic beings because there's something about empathy and control or non-controllability. And that I think is really what you're talking about. And what's really fascinating that hasn't even occurred to me until we're talking about it right now, that if you can't control them, if they feel bad about what they're being asked to do, they won't do it. That's, that's what's at the heart of it, right? And so you have, for example, Sapper Morton, right? He's this, this alpha model, this like really brawny model who was created for combat 
and did horrible things in Calantha and, you know, was pitted against other replicants. And it was this horrible scourge. And uh, had he had the ability to feel empathy for other replicants, even for example, he would have been less likely to do what he was being asked to do. And that extends all the way through the first film where you have, you know, for example, Pris born as a basically a sex slave, right? If she felt empathy, I mean, who, who, what if she felt empathy for the men that she or the women or whomever that she was being forced to sleep with? What if she felt sorry for them? And what would that do? I mean, I, I don't even know. But the injection of empathy into their programming is a really fascinating delineator that I think gets at the heart of what is really driving the decisions to create replicants in the first place, which are all capitalistic. And that's something that's important and very forward-looking about it, right? In other movies, I keep going back to The Terminator, partly because I, I love those films, but also because I think that they present a really interesting, almost contemporaneous look at how artificial intelligence was being looked at in movies. In The Terminator, AI is created as a tool of war, right? It's created as this mass controllable weapon system, basically, which then becomes uncontrollable. And that's, that's the problem because it becomes, quote unquote, self-aware, right? Which is also interesting terminology. In Blade Runner, the technology that they're creating, replicants, are not created for war, although some of them serve in that capacity. They're primarily created for commodity, right? They are things to be sold, to be bought and sold and used for whatever people want to use them for. You can have sex with them. They can do your farm work for you. They can kill somebody for you. You know, whatever, whatever you want. If you have enough money, you can get a replicant. If you have really enough money, you can get one that really looks a lot like whomever you want it to look like. You can get one that looks like your lost wife if you want to, blah, 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 blah. Um, you look at a, a film like, you know, alien or aliens, right? The, the, the artificial intelligence in that, I mean, those are incredible case studies in artificial intelligence as well, because you have obviously mother and you have all of these, you know, ship AI mainframe systems in, in throughout the series that are really fascinating to talk about because they are in some ways analogous to Hal and to the types of, you know, heuristic things that are driving him, but they feel to my mind a lot more advanced than that because they're they feel like they're not empathetic, but they feign it really well. They sound maternal. They sound like they're, you know, you call them mother because obviously it stands for this mainframe, whatever the acronym is, but also because they are, they feel comforting. Like that's you're, you're in the bosom of the ship and the ship is carrying you to safety. Right. Um, and then you also have an alien and aliens and the rest of the films you have, you know, droids, you have synths. And the synths are also similar to Blade Runner created basically just as tools for getting work done, right? Whether they're made for science purposes or they're made for warfare purposes or they're made for hauling weapons, like they're there is basically just, you know, hired labor or as infiltrational tools. And that's, of course, what Wayne Jutani does in the first film and blah, blah, blah. So looking at artificial intelligence from that perspective, both Blade Runner and the Alien Saga are basically talking about it as a tool for commerce, as something that's a commodity that then becomes, in some cases, empathetic or not, and that that creates interesting things. Anybody who says that Bishop, by the end of Aliens, doesn't have empathy is somebody who will have to argue with me for hours because I, I, I really have a hard time buying that. Not bad for a human. But is his empathy programmed? That's the thing, but 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 again, that's the question with joy too, right? And to to me, does does that does that matter? Does that change? It does anything? matter. It does matter. I think it it doesn't matter in terms of yes, it's great that he's empathetic and he's protective of humans. Of course, that's what we want, right? Like, great. That's what we need. Is it authentic for him? Who knows? 
who knows? Who knows what's authentic for him? If anything is authentic for him, does he even live if he's not turned on? Like in Alien 3, Ripley removes, you know, she, she essentially ends his life and he lets out that final sigh. But what was going on with him before? Probably nothing because he has no power. Um, that's an element that we'll get into later, like our empathy for AI. Where does that come from? That'll be a future episode. But it's, so, of course, something that you and I have passionately discussed. And I'm excited to discuss more. But um, yeah, um, AI with empathy. But is really the question us treating AI with empathy? Is that speak like that quote? You can there's a quote. I, I'll probably butcher it. But you know more about a person's integrity by what they can do for something who can do nothing for them. And I think Wait, re- try that again. Um, you know more about someone's integrity than you will know what? what people can do for someone or something that can do nothing for them speaks more to their oh, integrity. Okay. To their integrity than anything else. So, so you're saying basically, like, if if I do something for someone who's not going to do something for me in return, yeah. I have integrity. Or if you find a baby bird um, that's fallen from its nest, and you put that bird will never know who you are, never will never care. Right. But you picking that bird up and finding its nest says more about who you are. Okay. Us treating AI with respect. Regardless of that, whether they're not, I mean, in terms of their program, they might be like, oh, thank you, you know, or whatever. Um, we don't really, we don't really know, but it doesn't matter what they perceive from us. What matters is how we treat them. And I think that's the story of AI. That's really what we're getting at is we're learning about ourselves through how we treat artificial intelligence. But it's complicated as well because in the movies you have artificial intelligence that's out to kill you. There's a movie which I can't wait to get into in a future episode, Artificial Intelligence by Steven Spielberg, which is layered and complicated and beautiful and terrifying, and it encompasses the entirety of the human experience within the eyes and the experience of a seven-year-old, eight-year-old boy. And it's fascinating. Um, But I feel like what we're on in this in this new series is really empathy. This is a show about empathy, our empathy really at the heart of it. Um, and our fascination with empathy through the eyes of AI. Yes. And also why we have AI in the first place. That's something that's, that's a really good question to ask because like, like what led to humans, obviously like we're driven by a need to understand the world around us. We're driven, unfortunately by a need to make money, we're driven by sex. We're driven by a need to procreate. We're driven by, you know, a need to have a stable home and a stable, you know, whatever. But the decisions that lead to artificial intelligence are interesting because like, what does it actually get us? It allows us to do work faster. Presumably it allows us to have work sort of do itself. I think that probably leads a lot to it. You know, you want to have something where you're not having to program every single task where it can use its artificial intel. I mean, even in the word artificial intelligence, right? It means that it has its own artifice of a brain. And so it's able to do things without having to be told what to do because it knows what to do intuitively and it can make decisions for itself. So, you know, it'll be interesting in the course of the series to look at why we started doing that in the first place, like how we went from early adding machines to computer mainframes to smaller computers to smaller computers that could basically run themselves, to things that eventually emerge in our phones, to things that we don't even see. And also to talk about why it's so hard to talk, you know, not to talk, but to to make films about those things that feel new and refreshing in the way that Blade Runner did. 
because we live in a time where we've really seen a lot of different expressions of what AI looks like in movies. I mean, The Matrix is a perfect example of this, right? In The Matrix, you have an artificial intelligence that is using us as, as an energy source. And like the whole story is about humanity overcoming this distant artificial intelligence, right? That that's a trope that comes up in movies all over the place and it drives much of science fiction for the last, you know, hundred years. So I think it's going to be interesting to talk about why and to talk about why not only we enjoy stories about this, but why we have this in the first place. What drove humanity to want to do this? Because in many ways, it would seem easier to just have, you know, like, so an algorithm isn't an artificial intelligence, right? An algorithm is just a chain of, of commands. The ways algorithms work and the ways that they're instructed to work with one another is where the AI comes in mm-hmm. and the ways in which those algorithms can speak to one another. And that's where you have things like Cambridge Analytica and all these crazy data mining operations that we have no window into until there's some sort of a huge filing with some national agency somewhere. And we all go, what the hell? And we get terrified. And then we realize, well, there's nothing we can do about it because the cat was out of that bag a long time ago. Like what led us to that place? I think it'll be really interesting to to find that out. And I'm excited to have, you know, we're going to, so we're going to have this kind of kickoff tonight with the two of us. And we're going to have another episode with Peter. And we're going to have another episode with the full hosting staff. And I really hope we can do, you know, have more episodes in this series, even just, you know, throughout the year, because it is Blade Runner's 40th anniversary. And we may or may not have a t-shirt coming to celebrate that, which is pretty exciting, which we'll talk about soon. But, uh, but it's also like, you know, we are at a moment where AI is so, incredibly infused in our lives that taking a step back to look at that and to look at why we make movies about it feels really timely to me. Mm-hmm. And on that note, I, I, as you were talking, I was thinking about our relationship to AI and how it, it began with like calculators and help us, help us do this a little bit easier. Help us, help us. This is going to help us. This is going to make things better. Oh, now it's going to, can you save us? Can you save us? And then in the movies or whatever, but also in our lives, please don't kill us. Please don't be, please don't, not that, don't help us that much. No, that's too much. So it's this, this very, I I almost want to say this organic thing that began where we started it with like, you know, I mean, an AI or I would just, let's just take a step back from AI for a second. And when they started like um, coming up with clocks and motors and all of the things that go into watches back in the the 1800s and sometimes earlier, or they would make these um, musical um, sculptures where they would move or they would play, and you'd see like a, a little yeah, the girl, automatons. Yeah. yeah, like a little porcelain doll playing the music, and it was fascinating to people at that time. No one had ever seen anything like it before, but that was the beginning of it. But at that point, it was like, oh, neat. And that's all it was. It was neat. And then as time went on, those things developed intelligence, but in different spheres where the intelligence was like, you know, based off of algorithms, based off of, well, let's put this math in here and this math will work with this math and then it'll push us here. And as we developed uh, the space program and we went to the moon, all of these things were developed to enable that. So AI's role with us was really complementary for a long, long, long time. It was, it was hopeful. Like if you see images of the world's fair or, um, auto shows from the fifties and the sixties, and you see the cars of the future and all that was inside of them and how automated they were. And even things that were made for the kitchen 
all these like futuristic things that would just make make making food or dinner or whatever easier in the kitchen. So all of it was complimentary. All of it was uh, a way for us to become better as humans. And then things shifted. And then it shifted when we're like, well, how can we make this be profitable? How can we have this math help us in our companies be be profitable? And I even think that had complementary overtones. It had complementary overtones. But then it vastly shifted when money started to come into play. When like, oh, hey, this information is feeding us this, which then is making us this profit. Let's do more of it. Let's do more of it. They're buying this. They bought this this information. Yeah, this this person, these 5,000 people, they love this thing. Let's feed them over to this organization. Oh, wow. Because we got those 5,000 views, 300 of those people made $200 purchases. That's great. Again, it's complimentary in some ways. Like, well, we make better business. We, we have a higher profit margin. Um, but what's really happening is slowly, one by one, a piece of humanity is being taken away. One by one by one by one, the oversight gets less and less because the algorithms are the oversight, right? That's what's um, in play. And again, it gets back to the, the big word, empathy, um, where empathy has been abandoned for profit. And I really, again, think that that's kind of the heart of what we're discussing. But there's just so much there. There's so many films and uh, characters here for us to discuss. I can't wait to get into the discussion of joy again in a way. We, I mean, we haven't discussed joy in three years, maybe. Um, that doesn't feel like it because we always talk about being about to talk about her again. Yeah, right? and we haven't. I, I love, we had no. to look and see uh, our last episode. But I'm really excited about this this series. I've loved AI since I was a kid. I love the idea of robots and robotic things and making pe- things that look like people. And then you have like Westworld, the new show, the old show, robots who find agency. And then with that agency, destroy mankind, which I think is, again, going to be a fascinating conversation. So I'm excited for it. Yeah, me too. I guess just in closing, you know, you, you're talking about the automata, which is something that I, I also find really fascinating. Uh, you know, there was this, the most famous of all of these, like, you know, antiquated mechanical devices that used to tour around and give shows was called the Mechanical Turk. And the Mechanical Turk was this chess playing automaton that was this really, you know, whimsical thing with this guy with these mechanical hands that would play a chess game against somebody and it was, it would win every single game. And it was really, really good. And it would tour, you know, palaces and Kings and Queens would see it. And everybody always wondered how it worked and nobody could find some kind of a solution to it because, you know, it was so complicated that there's no way it could possibly be real. And then of course time goes by and eventually it turns out there was a person inside the mechanical Turk on the bottom who was a chess <laughs> grandmaster just playing the chess game the entire time and just controlling like a puppet. Wow. And so I think even back then, AI and technology was used as something to make money, right? None of these things were touring the countryside for free. Like you had to pay to, to see them. Mm-hmm. And even into the 20th century with those world's fairs and things like though, as, as amazing and optimistic as mid 20th century America is. And I say that as somebody who's a very big connoisseur of that stuff and you've been to our house. I love mid century things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you, you got a room right next to me. Um, you know, I, like I, I, I love, I love that fundamentally optimistic mid century spirit. 
it was super capitalistic though. Like all of those devices that were being trotted out for your kitchen, they weren't there because they were cool. They were there because they wanted you to buy them. They wanted to you know, do a proof of concept that would get people to buy. The thing is though, is that until recently, artificial intelligence wasn't successful. And I think that is what is worth pointing out. Even the space program, like what we did, well, I mean, it's one of the great achievements in the history of humanity going to the moon, for example, but like that was done using extremely rudimentary programming that wouldn't even qualify as artificially intelligent by any modern standard because it was something you could do, you know, you could fit it on one floppy drive, for example. So it wasn't like it hadn't reached this tipping point where it was enough uh, of, of a thing unto itself to be viable economically. It was always a whimsical thing. And I think that's why so many of the ways that we talked about it for the better part of a century were fundamentally whimsical. We talked about it as something that would help us to do faster than light space travel or something that would help us brush our teeth more quickly in the morning, just as something that was that was exciting and something to live with. And then we would have these aberrations from that. We would have 2001, or we would have the alien films, we'd have Blade Runner, these things that gave us more nuanced, complex looks at it. But by and large, you know, if you were an American in the towards the end of the 20th century, you thought of artificial intelligence as something exciting, unless it was Skynet. But like that's probably not going to happen. So let's not. That's like that's ridiculous. But now we live in a time where where artificial intelligence became successful, where it actually did tip over. Right. The most famous our AI concept is the Turing test, which for anybody who doesn't know, and we've talked about this before, but. The Turing test was formulated by Alan Turing, who in many ways is considered the father of artificial intelligence. And it was this maxim that he said that you, if, if you have you know, one person on one side of a wall and another person and, and an artificial intelligence on the other side of the wall passing notes to each other, if the human cannot tell that there's not another human on the other side of that wall, artificial intelligence will have become truly artificially intelligent. And you will have what we have today, which is that we often can't even tell who we're talking to anymore. You know, I was just listening to a radio story today about somebody who fell for a scam. It was this guy who was really, you know, prone to conspiracy theories. He ended up flying to West Africa because he was told that there was this woman there from Oklahoma who was a missionary nurse who like, you know, he wanted to start a relationship with and he went there and she didn't exist and he almost died because of it. Um, you know, we hear about these things all the time. People can't even tell who they're talking to. Um, and that was so fascinating that we, you know, we thought artificial intelligence would be, we can't tell what we're looking at. We are right. We thought it was going to be replicants. We thought it was going to be things that we interact with where we don't know it's not a human because it looks the same way we do. And we can't, we can't tell that, but what's so fucking weird and so subtle is that it's not that artificial intelligence in 21st century America isn't pretending to look like us at all because it doesn't need to. It just needs to be in our head. Mm -hmm. And once it got into our head, it got dominion over the kingdom of man. And that's the place that we're in now. And that's what's so fucking scary to me, yeah. but also so fascinating to talk about. Yeah. I can't wait to talk about more, man. There's so many things going through my head right now. Um, we will wait for the next episode. So with that, um, we're going to wrap things up. Uh, before we do, I just wanted to mention that we have a a program called Patreon. And if you sign up for $4 a month, you can get uh, Sublime Noise, which is our film score review show, Frame Rate, which is our film review show. Start at which $4 we just recorded a, a couple hours ago today. Yes, Jamie, we did. what we just did. What did we just do? Uh, we recorded an episode on The Northman. Yeah, we did. Was, which was really, really great. Um, a great conversation, a great film. Highly recommend it. Um, but if you sign up 
if you go to bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support, sign up for $4 a month, you can get access to our review of The Northman, our, our latest reviews on film scores, our past repertoire of film reviews and score reviews, which is like probably close to 100 episodes by now. Um, and all of the money that you give to us, that you pledge to us, goes back into the show this Blade Runner 40th anniversary t-shirt that we're working on. I need to finish this audio drama that I, I have had all the elements to. <laughs> That's, That's 15 minutes long. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that was for 2020. Um, I just need to do. Um, but all of your money goes back into the show and it's, it, it has made us a better show. So if you're thinking about it, bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Amen. And a special thank you to Devin Q. Jordan Patnod. And Sander Kempen, uh, our two newest active patrons, thank you for joining or rejoining. I'm not sure. I think your names look familiar, so we might have already had you before. Regardless, thank you for, for joining us on Patreon. And if you want to join them, again, it's bladeburnerpodcast.com slash support. And we would love to see you there because we're putting a ton of content out and, uh, and we think you'll really like it. Yep. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you. If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.